me again. <laughs> All right, how are we doing today? All right, again, really good to see everybody out here and glad the weather's cooperating with us. Uh, been a pretty easy winter here and happy about that. Uh, we're continuing in a series that Mike started called Twisted Truths. And what we're looking at are some parables of Jesus. But we're trying to, what we're trying to glean out of these is how these parables have a depth to them beyond the obvious because there's both a natural and a supernatural lesson contained in these. There's a deeper meaning. And as we study these, I love how Mike framed this a couple of weeks ago, how he referred to them as window lessons versus mirror lessons. And I, that's just brilliant to me. I, he always blows my mind, and he never failed to disappoint me with that because he compared it to uh, the glass pane of a window, and under certain conditions, they re it reflects and you see yourself. But if you approach the glass and look deeper, you can see through it, and what looks like a mirror is actually a window. So there's mirror lessons where these parables help us to see ourselves more clearly, but there's also window lessons where we look through beyond the obvious and we start to see deeper truths, not about ourselves, but about God. So today we're studying in Luke 15. We're going to look at the story of the prodigal son. Great topic. So and you can follow along in your worship bulletin. It's kind of a longer parable. So uh, if you want, I can read faster. <laughs> but Luke 15, starting in the 11th verse, it says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. 
he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted, fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted, fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Forgot my clicker. <laughs> okay. Everything is right in Mark world again. <laughs> the word prodigal is a word that actually is not a Bible word, believe it or not. You won't find the word prodigal actually in the Bible. What they did was add some headings to certain stories, and this is one that was just added to make for a quick reference. But, and even in the NIV, this is a story actually referred to as the parable of the lost son. But the word prodigal son is kind of stuck through the ages. It was the term used in the King James. And prodigal is an interesting word because, first of all, the word prodigal is neither positive nor negative. It's defined as profuse or lavish or extravagant or excessive. Uh, but in these definitions, it could be to one extreme or the other. I mean, having things being profuse or excessive isn't necessarily a bad thing. But it's also not necessarily a good thing. It depends on what you're talking about. So in a negative sense or a positive sense, you could have excessive waste or you could have excessive generosity or you could have excessive frugality. And interestingly, in this story, there are three main characters, the father, the younger son, and the older brother. All three could be easily described as prodigal or excessive. The son, obviously, the younger son represents extreme waste. The father, extreme generosity, and that older brother, extreme frugality. And that's kind of the angle we're going to look at this from this morning. Now, the story of the prodigal son is not a one-dimensional story. I learned this story, like perhaps a lot of us in Sunday school when I was a kid, and then after learning it, I lived it, <laughs> and that's another story in itself. And then when I got here to Hope, 
I naturally presumed, looking at everything from my narrow window, from my little point of view looking out, that everybody who heard the story of the prodigal son would naturally relate with the younger son, right? I mean, isn't that the whole point? So we were teaching on this one time here at Hope at a small group. And we read the story like we did this morning. And this person in the front row became very emotional, was very moved by this. And finally, they sigh and they go, we have a son like that. And it blew my mind because they were seeing this story not from the younger son's point of view, but from the parent's point of view. And that really blew me away because it, it started to dawn on me, there's a lot more going on in here than I realized. So as I started to revisit this parable, I started to understand that not everybody who hears this is going to see it from the same point of view. And if we add into that the point of view of the people who Jesus was talking to, he was telling this story primarily to a Jewish audience. So like myself, I had a preconceived notion, and obviously from their upbringing, they would have a preconceived notion. So, but there's uh, different angles to this. For example, the father. Some people would, would relate to the father's positive qualities, because he was certainly loving, he was certainly forgiving, but others might think that he was certainly foolish. I mean, who gives a young son a ton of money and turns them loose? That's kind of stupid. <laughs> uh, others relate to the younger son. I mean, he was certainly selfish. He was certainly reckless. But on the other hand, you have to give him credit. He was certainly wise, wasn't he? Because he ended up uh, in a very good place. He wasn't that stupid. And then we have the older brother. And he was certainly loyal. He was certainly hardworking. He actually manifested a lot of positive qualities. And, but on the other hand, he also was very hard-hearted and very angry and very judgmental. And again, that's one of the things I appreciate about this story is there's layers, not only to the story, but layers to the characters themselves. So, in a general sense, as I mentioned, I not only learned this lesson, but I lived it. And some of you know my story. And the story of the prodigal son is kind of like the Bible story for addicts and alcoholics and fallen people all over. That's, this is our story. Kind of like Amazing Grace is our church song. And when they get to that part, saved a wretch like me. You know, I belt that out even though I couldn't carry a tune if you put handles on it. But that's my verse. And, there, and amazingly, <laughs> there's people that are softening the words to amazing grace. They start because they think it's offensive or excessive. So they softened it to saved a soul like me. Or another version uh, was uh, who saved and set me free instead of saved a wretch like me. And my reaction to that is, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> don't go messing with my song. That's my song. And when they, when they say wretch, that, you know, wretches are my people. 
Any wretches here today? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> you know, we know who you are. <laughs> but but that's, that's the deal. So um, I remember, in fact, I remember years ago, I went to a funeral for uh, somebody that I didn't know very well, and they sang Amazing Grace. And I remember talking to somebody, I go, was he a drunk? And I go, drunk? Yeah, he, he hardly drank, and if he did, it was in total moderation. I go, but they sang Amazing Grace at his funeral. <laughs> he liked the song. It's a good song. <laughs> so, but, uh, but this is, this is the, the story for people that have hit a bottom and got, who God has restored. And now, if, again, I mentioned seeing this from the Jewish point of view, and there actually is a Jewish version of the story of the prodigal son. Interestingly, it's also the Stanley Lauritsen version of the prodigal son. This is how my dad would have told the story too, not just how the Jews would tell it. But the way this story would go, a man has two sons. The younger one said, give me my share of the estate. The father said, no, get back to work. The end. <laughs> Short and sweet. <laughs> Everything about the story of the prodigal son was crazy to Jews. Because first of all, you don't divide an inheritance while the rightful owner is still alive. That just doesn't happen. But it is interesting if you see it from God's point of view. See, we all are rich, rich beyond measure. And we all have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. But the funny thing is, on this planet, to come into an inheritance, there has to be a death, right? And somebody ha has to die, usually somebody we love, in order to come into it. Now, ironically, on the heaven side of things, there also needs to be a death to inherit something, but God doesn't have to die for him to bless us with an inheritance. We do. <laughs> you see how that's kind of backwards, right? So everything with God is kind of backwards. And the point of that is simply that there is an inheritance involved in this. And to the Jews, you would have to die in order for your sons to inherit. But again, so many things are backwards with this story. But ultimately, what, the, what is this story about? I believe that the story of the prodigal son is really a story about individuals who squander grace and how others react to this waste of grace. I don't know if you see what I did there. Waste of grace. You, as we know, Mike is a lover of uh, alliteration. He's a wordsmith. Everything with him has to rhyme. Uh, I don't know if it's a blessing or a sickness. <laughs> I like it because I'm the same way. But what I'm slipping in here, just so you know, uh, Mike has written a bunch of books, phenomenal books, uh, and they all rhyme. There's the case for grace, the vase for grace, the race for grace, the base for grace. I'm kind of subtly suggesting maybe he does one called the waste of grace. <laughs> 
Because the Bible is chock full of examples of people who received the grace of God and squandered it in one way or another. Not everybody in the Bible got it. Not everybody understood it. So just thought I'd slide that in there. <laughs> but in this story, we see a lot of different reactions to the father and how the father reacted to the, both sons. We see how the sons reacted to each other. We see how the sons reacted to their father. So there's a lot of action and reaction going on. For example, when it came to the young son's return, there were actually two characters in this story that were very unhappy about the son's return. One of them obviously was the older brother, the other was the fatted calf. <laughs> I'm assuming the calf wasn't too happy, <laughs> but, uh, but mainly it was about the son coming home and making his dad very happy, but ironically making his older brother very angry. And we're going to probably understand uh, why that is. You see, what's interesting about this story is that both brothers squandered their father's goodness and generosity, didn't they? In one case, it was obvious, and the other was a little more subtle. But the one brother received his father's goodness and generosity. He received it, failed to appreciate it, and then wasted it. The other one received it, failed to appreciate it, and thus wasted it. So in both cases, they missed the point. They missed the boat. Now, a little bit about that Jewish audience that would have heard this story. To me, it's very critical to understand how Jesus threw some very specific details into this story that we might not pick up on as Gentiles, but certainly a Jewish audience would have picked up on a lot of the details of this story. Notice how when he tells this, he was very specific that a man had two and only two sons. A man had two sons. And it goes into very good detail about... Uh, about that, but what a Jew would have understood about that is that the story says that the son asked, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So you see, when he did this dispensing of inheritance, he didn't just carve out one portion and give it to the younger son and keep the rest. At that point in time, the father clearly divided his entire estate between both sons. And that's important. The other thing that the Jews would have instantly understood is according to the to Jewish law, the way inheritance worked is the older son got a double portion. So the way that worked in the Jewish culture was if you're the oldest, you get twice or like a double portion. For instance, if there's five heirs, you get the same as two of the five. Some people say, well, they get twice as much, but that's not necessarily how the math works. You got 
two portions instead of one. But if there's only two sons, that means that the younger son got one third of the estate, the older son got two thirds. So you see, instantly we start to understand that older son instantly became rich because we're obviously not talking about a small amount of money. This guy had a farm and a home and houses and he had livestock and he had uh, employees, servants. So this speaks to a very wealthy person. So that older son got twice as much and he got it immediately. That's not a bad deal. So it didn't really distract a lot for the younger son to go and waste his portion because the older son is still sitting very, very well. And the other thing that that leads to then is an understanding about why the father was so taken aback by the older son's reaction to all this. When the, when the older brother is so frustrated and he levels accusations where he says things like, uh, uh, he says, uh, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Uh, and then, you know, it, it's see how crazy all of that is? Because now that we understand how this particular inheritance worked, he says, number one, the son wasn't slaving in his father's fields. They were his own fields. He owned them. <laughs> so how could he accuse the father? I'm slaving away for you. He wasn't slaving away for his father. He was slaving away for himself in his own, on his own accord. And then he goes on to say, you never gave me even a young goat. What do you mean? I just gave you the whole farm. I just gave you everything you see. That's not my goat. That's your goat. You could have killed that goat and thrown a party anytime you wanted. You could have killed the fattened calf and had it any day you chose. That wasn't up to me. That's up to you. And he talked about, uh, you know, how unfair this all was. Like dad didn't do anything for him or give him anything. And the father's going, I don't even know how you can reach that conclusion. I've already given you everything. You have everything. And you're acting like I never gave you anything. But you see, that's frequent flyer points. <laughs> Just didn't get it. And that it's things like that that make this story really interesting to me. But it also speaks a lot to any of us who struggle with things like workaholism or perfectionism or legalism. Because people that are wired that way, they always blame other people for putting them under their thumb and having these high expectations and being demanding. But how many times don't we put that on ourselves and then blame others for it? And that's certainly how I am. I tend toward perfectionism, but I never blamed me. It was everybody else that had these impossible expectations. And I think you could build the case that the older son was also 
tend toward uh, perfectionism, obviously legalism, and workaholism. But he was doing it to himself. So what do these lessons say about us? See, in Christianity, there's this scale, this teeter-totter balance between two things called liberalism and legalism. And when we use the word liberal in a Christian sense, we're not talking about politics. We're not talking conservatives versus liberals. Liberalism is the antithesis of legalism. It's easy to understand legalism because legalism is law. Legalism is punishment. And on the opposite extreme, liberalism simply means it's a free-for-all. Just do as thou wilt. Uh, just do whatever you want. And, and some people refer to it as cheap grace, which is kind of an oxymoron because the grace from God is never cheap. It's not cheap, but it is grace. And where do you find the intersection between the two? See, I think that's why God blessed us as being parents, because if parents always had to challenge, had this challenge of balancing the two, didn't they? Because you want to raise good kids, you have to have rules, you have to have discipline. You can't just give kids whatever they want, because it'll, you know, spoil them, spoiled rotten. But on the other hand, you don't want to be so, so heavy-handed that you'd ruin them or drive them away or break their spirits or just make them give up because they can't live up to those expectations. So you're constantly trying to find that balance point. And you see, the balance point in Christianity is Christ. Because Christ is how you can bring those two seeming extremes together in one. Because Christ said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And because of what he did, it fulfilled the law and the legalistic part, but it also extended grace and mercy and love to us. And that's a lot about how this story works. You know, the way we often teach it out here is for every mile of highway, there's two miles of ditch. <laughs> Makes your odds one and three of making it home on Saturday night. <laughs> but, but that's a lot of how this is. We can go right from one ditch to the other and miss the middle of the road. And that's kind of the mistake that, the, that both sons made. But the one finally found that middle of the road. It's also interesting in this story that there is a legalistic component to the story of the prodigal son because the Bible says that, uh, I think I wrote that down, but it tells us in the book of Hebrews, uh, I think it's uh, Hebrews 9.22 says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, for the animal lovers like my wife here, that doesn't sound very fair. Leave the poor innocent animals out of this. But the shedding of blood is a component in here because the calf... The fatted, fattened calf died. But you'll also find that in the book of Genesis. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, what was the first thing God did? Make them some proper clothes out of animal skins. An animal died to provide clothes. So subtly there is sacrifice in this. But as Mike very wisely points out, the point of blood is not death, it's life. The life is contained in the blood. 
And the point of this sacrifice is in no way a component that's supposed to teach us about the seriousness of sin. Oh, something's going to die. There's going to be blood. It's not about the seriousness of sin, but rather it's about teaching the value of grace, the value of mercy, the value of forgiveness. It's like this is how important that is because life is in the blood. And so, but with that in mind, what this tells us about us is that nobody in this story wants to end up like the older brother. But ironically, you can go right from the ditch of being the prodigal son into the opposite ditch of becoming the older brother. It's kind of like somebody leaving a lifeboat, like on the Titanic, and as soon as they're safe in the boat, they want to cut the rope and say, okay, I'm in the boat, let's go. <laughs> People did that, and they were, they were accused of being cowards. See, the point of Christianity is not just for me to be saved. It's for others to be saved because of my salvation. See, the point isn't to be the last guy into heaven and have the gate slam closed behind me. It's about having them open long enough and wide enough to let others in behind me. Because once we're saved, then what do you do? Save others. Once you're in the boat, what do you do? Pull others in with you. And that's the whole point of the prodigal son. Instead of going to the opposite legalistic extreme, well, I was lost and now I'm found and forget everybody else. We need to find the middle of the road that the, the younger son did where we, we are saved, but we, it produces a change of heart. A change, it produces gratitude. And you see, that's a proper response to grace. And I get that because uh, what, what this story talks about is not so much just about us, but it really speaks more about lessons about God. See, it tells us in Luke 15.10, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One of my spiritual advisors turned me on to this verse many years ago, and he says, when you read that, you think, oh, the angels are rejoicing, right? Heaven, angels singing and dancing. Go, no, it doesn't say the angels are rejoicing. There's rejoicing in the presence of the angels. See, it's God getting out of his chair and dancing. <laughs> the angels are just watching him do it. He's doing that in front of them. And that's the lesson of the Father. Because remember, it doesn't say the son made it all the way home, does it? The father saw him while he was yet a long ways off. Meaning the father was watching the road, hoping that someday his son would return. He was waiting for him, watching for him, hoping for him. And when that day came, he didn't wait for the son to get home, did he? He ran to him. See, we draw, draw near to God, he runs to us. He meets us in the middle. The same way you look for the lost. Christ said he came to seek and save that which is lost. Now, if I'm lost in the woods, I'm going to try and find the trail. But what's more important is there's a search party trying to find me. And you see, when we say we're seeking God, it, we imply that he's lost. 
God isn't lost, we are. <laughs> and the whole picture of this is somebody who's coming home, but it's more about the father running to him. And then what does the father do? He restores him. He puts a, the robe on him and the ring signifying he's back in the family. It's a sign of authority. He puts sandals on his feet, which is a sign of civilization. And, you know, and so, you know, it's a, because it, it, not everybody had shoes back then. So that was a big deal. But part of that was if you were looking from the farm and look, you would assume that the one in the robe was the father, not the son wouldn't you? And you see, that's how God operates. He takes our hits and, you know, our punches, and then he turns around and gives us his blessings. You know, our losses become his. His gains become ours. We kind of switch places. When God looks at us, he doesn't see us. He sees his son reflected. That's Christianity, and that's a beautiful thing. And that's that's kind of buried in that story of the prodigal son. So, so the, the next thing about that is it also says that not only was the father happy, but it says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. See, the other part of this story from the father's point of view is the father in this story, when he was asked to give the son his inheritance, didn't hold back, did he? He didn't say no. And when the son loaded it up to head into town, he didn't stop him and he didn't repossess it. See, God gives gifts, but it's a one-way street. He doesn't repossess them if you're bad or use them wrong. He's not going to snatch them away from you. That's not in his nature. It's not in his character. So when God blesses us, we are truly blessed. And But the point of that is that God respects self-will. See, just like in this, because God says he didn't want slaves, he wanted sons. The kid came back willing to become a slave, to become a servant. But this, the father wanted none of that. He didn't want another slave, or a, he didn't want somebody like that on his farm. He wanted his son back. So it was all about restoration. And Obviously, when you're restored, it's going to give us a change of heart. We go in a different direction. And the other thing that he doesn't want is, it says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. See, he doesn't want us to be like that older son, where we think we're the ones doing it all. See, grace is a gift, a free gift from God. And how do you receive it? Receive it, <laughs> accept it. But it's not really a gift until we pick it up and run with it. See, they're going to, I think I got a notice this morning, FedEx is going to drop something off at my house. But if I don't carry the package inside, did I really get a package? No, we have to receive it. So bottom line, what does God want? What does God like? God wants sons, not slaves. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. God values relationships over obedience. God values love over law, grace over punishment. God gives us what we need and sometimes even what we want, but it's always about our personal development. 
what's ultimately best for us. God values self-will, and it's up to us if we what we do with it. Uh, God not only forgives, he restores, and he changes places with us. And you see, the last point of this is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. We find all three in this story. Because the Father, of course, there's the Father, but there's also the sacrificial uh, fattened calf there, which kind of represents Christ. But there's also the Spirit. And to me, this is the biggest point of this whole prodigal son story. The miracle of this story was when, not that the young son hit bottom, but that he had a moment of clarity. He came to himself, is how the King James puts it. And you see, that's the work of the Spirit. That's the presence of the Spirit. You see, and that's my story. That's what happened to me. Uh, Many years ago, I was laying in a snowbank outside of a beer joint in a very bad part of town. And as I recall it, what happened was my soul left my body. And I'm looking at myself, looking down on me, laying in this snowbank. And that's not the weird part. (laughs) The weird part was I had one of those. A moment of clarity, a flash of honesty, the eternal truth that I think Max Lucado coined the phrase of. And for the first time in my life, it was like the hand of God Almighty reached down and held my lying mind at bay, suspended my lying lower nature so I saw things the way they really were, not the way my lying mind always told me they were. And for the first time in my life, I was no longer a victim. It wasn't my mommy's fault. It wasn't my daddy's fault. It wasn't my brother whose goal in life was to become an only child. (laughs) It wasn't my bosses at work. It wasn't the cops. It wasn't any of that. What put me in that snowbank was me. I got out of that snowbank, somehow managed to drive 30-some miles and check myself into a treatment center. And to this night, I've never, to this day, I've never had another drink. I just realized yesterday was actually my birthday, uh, 38 years. Uh, but, but believe me, I don't tell that story because it's not about me. This is not about me. I tell that story because this is a story of the grace of God. And you see, the miracle coming to ourselves and the miracle of knowing we're welcome home and the miracle of coming home and not being punished but forgiven, the message of being restored. You see, that is the beauty of the prodigal son. But I hope we understand it's not a story about the prodigal son. It's a story of the prodigal father, somebody who lavishes grace and mercy on all of us. Shall we stand for closing prayer? Lord, we just want to thank you for all of the lessons that you teach us through the Bible, through life's experiences, through other people's experiences, through our church, through our lives, through our spirits, through our souls, Lord. Just thank you for your lessons. And please help us to accept your grace with humility and to go out from here and make it about others and not just about us. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen.